This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're sitting on the planet. My guest today is Stephanie Simmons. She's the founder and chief quantum officer at Photonic. Dr. Simmons started her scientific career at the University of Waterloo as an undergraduate student in mathematics and mathematical physics. She moved to the United Kingdom for her graduate research, where she worked toward her doctorate in material science at the University of Oxford. She then moved to Australia to be a research fellow at the University of New South Wales, working on silicon-based quantum computing. In 2015, Simmons joined the faculty at Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, Canada, where she leads the Silicon Quantum Technology Laboratory and is an associate professor of physics. She was named by Caldwell Partners as one of Canada's top 40 under 40 in 2020, and she founded Photonic in 2018. Her company is based in beautiful Vancouver, Canada, and is at the forefront of designing next-generation quantum technologies in silicon. Their breakthrough results with silicon have upended many conventional assumptions in quantum computing. In fact, in July 2022, Simmons and her team published a piece in the magazine Nature describing an amazing breakthrough, a silicon chip that holds 150,000 qubits. With record-setting qubit performance, telecom networking, and silicon's manufacturing scale, Photonics silicon spin qubits will enable solutions for previously intractable problems and unlock solutions for tomorrow's problem sets. So welcome, Stephanie, and thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So I always like to start the podcast by asking my guest to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey. And my objective really is twofold, to give our audience a sense of what you did before you founded Photonic, but also to orient our audience more broadly to the fact that there are many ways and various paths that people have taken to get into the field of quantum information science. So if you could please share with our listeners a little bit about your background and your path so far, maybe where you grew up and more detail about where you went to school, what you studied, and then insight into companies or organizations where you worked or did research. Well, thank you very much. And uh, in some sense, you you already did the the tour for me. So you've already <laughs> kind of laid out where, where I was academically. But maybe the backstory is um, I was a, a huge nerd growing up. I, I was... Uh, I remember getting upset with my parents that they only introduced me to programming at the age of nine. I felt like I was already behind. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, no, I was, I was really into that because I, I was brought up and uh, born in the mid eighties. So coming up through, I remember what it was like to bike to a library to get information and just barely. And then I, I you know, the internet came through and so you could see it was happening. And I, I fell in love with the concept of quantum because it, you could already tell that it was next. Like in some sense, human history and human technological progress is always anchored in the commercialization of various branches of physics. And you could see like, even as I was a kid, commercialization of, like it was all made possible by silicon, right? It was all made possible by semiconductors. And uh, commercialization of semiconductor physics is why we get to have these wonderful, even podcasts today, right? And supercomputers in our pocket. I came across the concept of quantum computing when I was 16, because I had the good fortune of, of growing up in the um, Kitchener-Waterloo area, and there was a local newspaper article about the founding of the Institute for Quantum Computing, 
there and I fell in love and I never looked back. Like basically the premise of your question is interesting because I agree with you. There are many, many different paths that people take to come into this space uh, just by virtue of the timing and, and location. I'm a quantum native in the sense that like, I've been, I've been like heads down on, on quantum tech since the age of 16 onwards. And you're one of the few, I would have to say. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it's going to be more common over time, right? There's yes, for sure. There's a lot of people that come in now at the age of, of teen, and I know many teenagers now that are just falling in love with the concept because yep. you can do so many things when you open up new branches of physics um, as, as tools, essentially, for people. And you can never really anticipate in advance just how widespread those are going to be, right? So. Yeah, it's very exciting. And there will be lots of quantum natives going forward. And that's when we're going to really unlock the true value of this whole branch. I love the, that's a quotable quote for sure. The commercialization of physics is what drives sort of social and cultural advancement. I got to write that well, down. It, it kind of is, you know, the more, yeah, you think yeah. like even, even just the ability to have an empire across the sea involved understanding optics, right? Mm -hmm. Optical physics unlocked all of that. And then electromagnetism like the equivalent to quantum i think the closest is electromagnetism 200 years ago they used to fill audience halls in england to see a magnet right and it was equivalent to magic to them right this is sounds magical and and you can already see in popular culture people are using the word quantum and magic interchangeably and that's just the phase that's just the phase of of this but yeah every every branch of physics kind of has this really fundamental shift so it's fun it'll be fun to be part of that um, let's talk about photonics. So what led you to move from academia? Well, I guess you're still at Simon Fraser, but you know, what led you to start a quantum computing company? Was there an aha moment in the lab or conversation in a coffee shop or walking down the hall with somebody? Like how and where did photonic begin? Give us the background. What we're trying to build is huge. And I don't mean huge necessarily physically in terms of footprint, but the effort involved uh, you have to take a look at the different organizational structures of humans to see what makes the most sense, right? So if it's not going to be the LHC, right, where there's huge amounts of resources and everybody's working towards one common goal, that right. can be done in a public domain. Um, it's it's going to be corporate, right? The, just the resources on the table and the way that people are, or, organize themselves means that industry is the place where this is going to come forward. But the, the research, because when you, need, when you need to do research to, for example, find something, the uh, incentives that exist within research organizations are just better for that kind of method of, of development. So um, I did start, and I, yes, I am still a professor at Simon Fraser, because mm -hmm. I went hunting for what I thought was needed to deliver reliable quantum computing. And what do I mean by that? There's... Uh, Lots of different providers for quantum technology. It's the basis for why you can even have a podcast with, with enough. You know, there's there's enough of a, an industry now um, yeah. for people to take an interest, but none of them are reliable. And we know that and they know that. Right. Like, so what do I mean by that? They can't uh, accommodate any errors. And so today's modern supercomputers tolerate all kinds of errors, like lots of transistors don't do their job. And there are systems in place at the at the computational level and in the communications level. Like all of those things are built around the fact that if something fails, they can recover from it, and the actual signal still gets sent, or the the compute still happens. We don't get those blue screens of death anymore as much, right? <laughs> like we have uh, far more error correction capabilities. Quantum doesn't have that yet, and in fact, um, it's 
the reason it got going as a as an even as a sector in the mid '90s is because before that they didn't think it was even possible to do error correction in quantum. So the the challenge is okay, fine. What's what's gonna what is it going to take? Like, why aren't other companies? There's a few companies that are talking about fault tolerant or reliable quantum computing, but not many. And that's because yeah. the resources, at least some. Uh, according to some measures, the resources needed to deliver that are crazy. They're way outside where we are today. Um, we need buckets and buckets of qubits. And my instinct was that, okay, if we're going to need buckets and buckets of qubits, we're going to need something that enables modularity. And that means we can't be constrained to the size of a box. So I, I, I started off and I was playing with early quantum processors, and then it just became very obvious you know, um, we're going to have to really think deeply about how we how we work because there's there's you know twelve different approaches to quantum technologies, but none of them really naturally enable modularity. Where we can learn the lessons of classical supercomputers, where you know if you want to make a supercomputer, you just rack mount a whole bunch of smaller processors and put them together, right? So right. you're not worried about any one, um, and that means you can solve a much smaller problem rather than building one massive you know, football size field cryostat or something like that, right? Like you need to be able to have something that's modular. Right. I and, want to talk to you about, I want to talk yeah, to you about um, sort of interoperability. Preparing for our conversation, yes. um, I found a video on your website where you describe fault tolerant quantum technologies, as you're describing, in both networks and computing as being yeah. fundamentally the same core technologies, which I find intriguing. So plus you say that photonics, a quantum computer will be the first scalable fault tolerant quantum computing and networking platform. So yeah. given that there are other companies using similar approaches, you know, silicon-based spin qubits, um, why will you be the first? What are the differentiating factors? And I love the idea of the networking and quantum computing. Obviously, you know, network quantum computers are going to be exponentially, and that's probably not even a, a large enough qualifier or whatever for <laughs> the, kind of, the kind of power we're going to be able to access, right? So tell me about this in interoperability or that, that there's similarly core technologies from photonics perspective. That's exactly it. And, and we were um, kind of going down that path already. So you're, you're spot on the, the modular aspect of quantum computers. If you think about it, that the, any one module that you have in a, a large scale quantum supercomputer, but like you break it down to one of those modules, however many qubits each module holds, that thing actually is equivalent to a repeater. If you assume that the ability to link those modules is telecom, like I, I'm just, I'm just going to assert that yeah. if you have a way of building a modular quantum supercomputer, you are going to, and you had multiple ways of doing it. The one that can work with telecom photons just wins um, because the links in between modular quantum processors, if it's not telecom, you're, it's going to be slower. And there's a lot of technical reasons for that. But basically, telecom has gotten really, really, really good at lowering loss, like having low loss components, low loss fibers, all the rest of it. And the loss of photons is going to dictate how fast the modules can talk to each other, like how frequently that it's successful, the photon successfully gets made to be. So that means, okay, fine, if we're going to do a modular quantum supercomputer connected via, via telecom photons, that is the same thing as a repeater. And if that's true, if you work backwards from that model, then one that works on a telecom frequency naturally speaks exactly what you need for a, a distributed quantum network. 
Hmm. And then it opens up all of these things that, you know, I think it's maybe just a part of history that uh, people weren't working on. It's just different people working on different segments and therefore they think of these things separately. But truly, the, the problem of one sector, like the challenge, the core challenge for quantum networking is solved by quantum processors. And the core challenge of quantum processors is solved by quantum networks. And once you bring these together, you can open up applications that actually require both. So just from a long-term competitive advantage, if your technology is at the center of both of those worlds and as the center of that Venn diagram, then it will outcompete things that only exist on one side or the other. I, I'm yeah. just fundamentally agreed. It'll be easier to scale. Yeah. It'll be easier to scale modular quantum computers that are connect via telecom. It allows for that scalability that really quantum computers need to deliver reliable systems. It really offers that ease of scalability. That's the challenge. That's the core challenge. Let's get fault tolerance by we have to have lots of qubits and ideally not limited to anyone's, you know, you need to keep being able to scale. Otherwise you can't do bigger and bigger, more interesting, powerful problems. Yeah. So it offers that scalability, but then for networks, they need repeaters, right? They absolutely need repeaters because people aren't going to truly invest in point to point, like substantially in network infrastructure that is point to point. It doesn't scale because then you have to keep paying for every link. You need to have networks of these things, which really do um, involve entanglement distribution. And I think it's, you know, it's a bit of history that we are not thinking of these things as primarily entanglement distribution technology, technologies, one and the same. Yeah. Let's talk about sort of applications of this. There's a lot of focus, as we all know, in the quantum community um, around uh, post-quantum cryptography and, you know, Y2Q, the the year, you know, when quantum computers will crack current RSA encryption protocols. So again, in preparing, I read that, you know, by inherently supporting this quantum networking approach, photonics computing architecture will be one of the first to support quantum key distribution, QKD, uh, as well as post-quantum cryptography, PQC, and blind and remote quantum computing and more. So this is going to provide security to the global communications network for a vast range of use cases, right, across both public and private sectors. Tell our listeners more about how this is going to work. I hope we don't need it. (laughs) (laughs) I really really hope. Well, okay. We need it for long. (laughs) Oh, well, it will be a rough transition, right? It will be a rough transition. And that is the one thing where, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of the total spread of all the applications. We just are not very good at crystal ball thinking as humans, right? But, but, for quantum technologies, we do know that elliptic curve and RSA and Diffie-Hellman and basically most, if not based, nearly all of the of the algorithms that have been put forward as replacements to RSA, including R, like RSA itself, they'll all be weakened to quantum attack. And the problem uh, I, I really worry about is that it's quite asymmetric. There are some adversarial organizations out there whose business model is to just get information and data. And these are kinds of attacks that you can't detect in situ, right? It's math. So, you know, they'll be able to decode passwords and the rest. And it's just, it's asymmetric in the problem in the sense that they only need one. You only need one fault tolerant system out there that's at the scale of shore, which is only, you know, 6,000 logical qubits or so. And I say only, and you'll understand why I say only. Um, in a little while, but um, that's not, that's not, uh, those are one of the nearer terms. Like there's lots of other applications that require far more than that. And, and yet you only need one in the hands of an adversarial organization Mm -hmm. to take down all of Bitcoin, for example, right? Just empty out wallets. Yeah. And it's, um, I really hope that the, uh, 
the different algorithms that are out there to uh, provide an alternative that should not be um, amenable to quantum attack, that those hold up. But as we've seen, we had four come through NIST last... It's, it's a bit of a dynamic situation where until there exists one replacement algorithm that stands the test of time, which you can't really fast track, it's hard right. to put in all the trust you would want into all of the financial transactions that underpin the world's economy and the rest, right? Like it's, it's hard. And it's not something that we're going to know out of the gate, right? It's one of these ultimate zero-day attacks where the infrastructure can be available, right? Quantum, quantum key distribution and equivalent, like there's not just key distribution, there's all kinds of protocols you can use with entanglement distribution. That would be, I think, a good insurance policy for kind of critical infrastructure. But you're right that once you, once you think about computing and networking together, it brings in not just key distribution and, and upgraded versions of communications or networking protocols. It allows for really cool things like, yeah, blind computation and not just blind computing of, of quantum algorithms, Blind computing, for, for those listeners who aren't familiar, is, is the challenge where you can actually send off into the cloud uh, an ask to a quantum computer to perform any, any algorithm. And that includes classical algorithms because quantum information kind of is, is bigger than classical. You can do any classical algorithm within a quantum computer. It's a superset. Um, you can ask it to do that. And then you can also have proof that that processor doesn't retain any information about what was actually asked, what it was actually asked to process beyond the mm. metadata. Like it required X qubits and it took this number of times. Right. So like, it's really interesting that you can think about privacy and computation just a bit differently in that, in that regime. Yeah. That's a very interesting way to, to think of it. Let's talk about scalability. So it's certainly a challenge for most quantum platforms um, the photonic architecture, I read, combines the advanced manufacturing capability of silicon with distributed computing to achieve a quantum computer with unlimited potential to scale. So this seems like a very logical approach, and other companies are exploring it, but how are you leveraging the 75-plus years we have of silicon manufacturing best practices to accelerate quantum computing technologies? In some sense... There, there's other companies that are in silicon and in some it's, uh, but not really where we are. So let me maybe try and do a visual for, for your listeners. The, the thing that different silicon technologies have uh, at their disposal is that they can uh, put down buckets of qubits, right? It's as easy for us to press print on, on 10 qubits as it is 10,000 or even a million. Now that that's true for more than one kind of qubit in silicon, actually. So silicon photonics the, the is the industry standard for how you print fiber optics onto a chip, essentially. So all like the switches and and the rest, all the optical components that you would have on like an optical bench can mostly all be printed quite easily into silicon photonics. So that's actually one way where you can get buckets of qubits, right? You turn on a laser, you have lots and lots of photons. There's other qubits in silicon, which are the spin qubits in silicon. And that's kind of where I cut my teeth growing up. And they are essentially unpaired electrons or, or similar. They're spins, elect that, which is uh, a property of, of matter that exists within like electrons or nuclear atoms or, or the rest. And these are brilliant qubits. Like they, I, I had the good fortune of setting a whole bunch of uh, records for qubit performance not due to force of will, but because silicon is just super clean, right? Like it's, it has the right kind of properties 
not just from an industrial perspective, but like really, really solid quantum properties. It can be really clean and it has certain characteristics as a material. That means basically spins in that material, gorgeous qubits. And you can print lots of them. You can put them wherever you want because it's the same kind of implantation technique you would use for CMOS. But those are actually two separate circles in a Venn diagram. And before we got going, the intersection of those two things wasn't populated by basically anybody. And they are, it's different. It's a different technique. Right. The spins, so we have an object. Um, it's, it's actually a closer, you can think about it for people in the space, closer to like an NV center almost, hmm. in the sense that it's an object. It's a physical object that has a collection of atoms. You can think of it like a small molecule or something, which is trapped in a silicon lattice. So it's kind of similar to an ion trap in that sense, although you don't have all that trap infrastructure, you just plunk it into the crystal. So it has all these spins and the spins themselves are phenomenal qubits, but that object reacts very strongly to light. And in our instance, it reacts very strongly to telecom light. And so that's also anomalous across all the different semiconductors out there. Very few have been explored at specifically the telecom wavelength. So yeah, we're putting that all together. We're in the middle of that Venn diagram where each uh, each cluster, so we, the, ours that we like the most at the moment are, are T-centers. They have a, a small number of nuclear spins, three nuclear spins and an electron. They all are great qubits. And that object can talk to light. So it's very different. So yeah, you also print them at scale. That's great. But you're yeah. not constrained to the chip itself because the qubits kind of, when they interact using the photons, they don't care where they came from. They don't care what T-centers the photons came from. So you can have, you know, you can quite literally rack mount and, and fill out rooms with a whole bunch of these things. So it's not just uh, the density wow. within each one chip, but yeah, you can rack mount and modular, uh, have modular scaling across a whole data center as you want, as you like. And then the Cubans don't get lost. So they, yeah. get, they stay put and you can do all the regular games with them. So pose a technical question and ask about sort of language and libraries, right? So are there, are there ones that your solution prefers? I mean, Python, Q-sharp, Qiskit, Penny Lane, other specific SDKs, APIs, IDEs that work better with this technology or no? It's a, it's a super interesting question. What I really like is that in the industry, there is a lot of um, transduction happening, as it were, between these different packages. And ultimately, a universal quantum computer is a universal quantum computer. So, you know, there, there is uh, the ability to support all of them. Yeah, we have internally certain native languages that we choose. But again, I don't think that it's uh, that's a barrier to entry for, for anyone. I think it's going to be more interesting to think about how we're actually planning out logical circuits and logical operation because people aren't really working up there at the moment. There's a lot more work happening in this uh, pre-reliable phase where people are trying to test out different, different small-scale NISC algorithms. But really planning for that future is, is uh, I think, going to be a lot of value in the, in the years to come. So I read that you were named uh, co-chair of Canada's National Quantum Strategies Advisory Council. Congratulations on that, Thank bravo. You. And at our recent IQT Canada event in Montreal, there was a lot of excitement around this initiative, needless to say. Um, can you share a bit of detail, like some background on how this council was formed, as well as maybe updating the current status and what the plans might be for future work for this initiative? Thank you. Yes. What I like about it is that it is being taken seriously as a strategic effort for the government. And this has been a long time coming in the sense that Canada benefits very much from the fact that it invested early in quantum. And I'm, I'm personally I'm one of 
the many outputs of that early investment because you know falling in love with it at 16 getting to be like iqc and out here um in bc uh, the d-wave effort i mean um, 20 years of, of development really goes a long way to ecosystem awareness yeah what i what i like about the uh current push for a a, a national strategy is the fact that the government recognizes that the effort can't just be bottom up through research anymore, although that's been tremendously successful and there's all these different approaches. It is going through that kind of uncanny valley phase between research and commercialization. Really, we're all in the in the same boat here. We're all trying to deliver reliable quantum computers. And once once that happens, then then it kind of will take care of itself because you're basically, you know, there's mathematical proof of product market fit in that phase. But between here and there, it's not going to be solved by just research and it's not going to be solved by just individual companies either. It's it's a lot of a, it's an ecosystem effort and the Canadian government is, is taking that seriously, recognizing that they have to go from a pure supply side to a bit of a demand side to stand up an industry because that is really the opportunity to uh, get disproportional, disproportionate um, outcomes. Uh, Canada in particular has had a very good reputation for training and education and sp- spends uh, disproportionate, um, has played a disproportionate role in things like AI and, and many of the different, um, in the telecom industry and the rest. And we doesn't get to be a beneficiary usually because of the way that it thinks about industrial policy. So it's playing at that. The um, and, and so there's there's lots more to come to be announced around that strategy. Like the initial um, tranche of funds is kind of squarely in the, well, we need to do more of, of the bottom up side, but the, the top down side is kind of coming through various mechanisms right now. And it's, it's exciting to be in yeah. those conversations. But to be clear, um, I'm not implementing the strategy. I, the, the advisory council is uh, as a tool. It's a fast feedback loop for government to make sure that it's not misstepping as it goes through and suggests implementation for uh, to hit some of the targets that it wants to hit. Yeah, and yet, just to orient listeners. I mean, I think it's a great approach. Who is who are the members? Like, what what kind of a swath are you cutting in terms of participation? I'm assuming. Um, obviously, you know, public sector and then private sector and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. academia. It's, it's, and... That's right. That's right. And and you'll hear more in due course. But yeah, it kind of covers, it covers all of Canada, it covers industry, it covers research, it covers the user side. There's a, uh, what I'm really encouraged by is their commitment to rolling out a post-quantum transition, um, encryption hmm. transition. Like we do wow. need to have we know what we have to move away from elliptic curve and RSA, like that's non-negotiable. How do we do that? As well as invest in national infrastructure for a quantum uh, network. So it, it's kind of touching. It has it has um, links to all of those major players, which is great. Yeah. Great, and great. Yeah, it's yeah. it's exciting. That's very exciting. Yeah. yeah. Well, so Stephanie, we're coming to the end, and I always like to uh, conclude the podcast by asking my guests to share their vision of where quantum computing might be in, say, three to five to 10 years. You're looking at your crystal ball, wax philosophic. Um, Give our listeners a sense of what kind of impact you think it will have, you know, more broadly on how we live and work. Uh, Yeah, I don't think people are forecasting correctly. Uh, So I I really am grateful you asked this question. One of the benefits of starting off as a pure mathematician, I wanted to program these things, is that I still have a bit of that in me and I can... um, 
it became very obvious to me over the past couple of years that the goalposts have moved a lot closer and people aren't really responding that way. And it's not necessarily to do with a particular qubit I found in a particular material, although that will help. But it's uh, to do with the fact that there have been massive breakthroughs in quantum error correction, just massive. And just to paint it for your listeners, um, traditional thinking in quantum error correction is that you use something like the surface code and you would need thousands of physical qubits, like physical objects, qubits, to represent one error corrected, reliable, logical qubit, right? You'd actually have to, so instead of, you know, just having some redundancy, you need to have massive redundancy just to encode one qubit that you can trust that works reliably. And that's why people have been thinking this is, you know, 10, 20, 30 years away, because if you take a linear trajectory, like we're at 50 qubits, 100 qubits, okay, maybe a couple hundred, depending upon what's uh, what performance metrics you attach to it. And, and so that's just a huge gap, right? It's a huge gap between here and not even one logical qubit. And we need like thousands of them to do something like, like Shor's algorithm. But these error correction codes that are coming out now are phenomenal. They're phenomenal. They have overheads of something like, you know, 10, 20. And that is unlocked by connectivity. So that's been the missing thing. You know, 20 years ago, people knew about the surface code and like, okay, we need more fidelity, more fidelity, more fidelity, higher fidelity, better quality, and lots of them. And that's true, but it's not the only axis. If you think about the connectivity axis, so instead the surface code assumes that your, your two qubit operations are through proximity. And this seems deeply technical, but the consequences are enormous for the question that you asked, right? So if you change the way that you connect your qubits, if you have the ability to connect qubit A over here with qubit 10,000 over there directly, then you have new codes you can use. And those new codes have really low overheads, like, like shockingly low overheads, which means that the goalposts have moved completely. They've completely moved. So now instead of having to deliver millions of qubits at ridiculous fidelities, we're talking with the same kinds of numbers that we've already put on the table. And once you get modularity at that, um, and connectivity and modularity go hand in hand, right? So if you have that modularity, then suddenly we're off to the races. So I think, um, I'm not going to go on on record as it were with a, with a time, but I think people aren't reacting the way that they um, could be reacting to the change of the, the timescales. Um, because of the, these breakthroughs. And that changes the way we want to think about quantum networks as well, right? Because if it changes the timescales to deliver something where we do need a networking solution to act as an insurance policy, and even just a post-quantum encryption, um, yeah, I think there'd be a bit more urgency if the if the broader quantum industry recognized, uh, yeah, how phenomenal these new codes are and how how real it's all going to be for all of us very soon. Yeah. Well, Stephanie, thank you very much for sharing that insight and perspective. Uh, it's been fascinating learning about Photonic and your background and exciting days to come. I, I really appreciate you joining me today. Oh, well, thank you very much for your interest. It's been a lovely conversation. I want to invite people to follow you and the company on LinkedIn, uh, point them to the website, uh, photonic.com. Also, you have a social media channel on Twitter at Team Photonic that our listeners can uh, explore as well. So thanks again. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks again, Stephanie, for joining me today, and thanks to all of you for listening. Please share this podcast on social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with Stephanie. Listen to my other podcast episodes, if you haven't already, 
And please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.